Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, as we close out our time in Belgium, I am joined by husband Jeff as we discuss the Cutter of Mons, or better known as the Butcher of Mons, Belgium. Now, this name was allegedly chosen because of how he dismembers his victims, his unfortunate victims, and just the tremendous amount of precision that gets used in his cutting, in his butchering of these unfortunate women. Like a butchering a cow? Like that kind of? But a woman, right. Right, a woman's body. So he's cutting them up, like going to butcher and package them and... Right, and we'll talk about the packaging, quote unquote, packaging. Oh, as that's well. a real thing too. Right, right. <laughs> what a creep! No, you. Ha- this guy's a fucking dirtbag, right off the get go. So, uh, have you ever heard of this guy? I mean, nope. Neither have I. And generally, my favorite thing to do is kind of pattern every place we go with some sort of true crime that uh, is associated. And since we were in Belgium and all over Belgium, this. Uh, Serial killer was the one that actually caught my attention. So let's start at the beginning. Women start to go missing in January of 1996. And they continue to go missing through July of 1997. So a solid year and a half we're talking about. And the reason why this particular dirt bag is referred to as the butcher or the cutter of Mons is because this is primarily where they find a lot of the bodies and where these women had frequent or and lived in. And just for a point of reference, even though this happens, Mons is located in Belgium, it is actually very close to the border of France. Our first victim that goes missing is a Carmela Russo. She was 42 at the time of her death. And we're just, I mean, in general, all of these women, we're, you're going to notice, just seem to not have a whole lot of people in their life. They were, I think, for the most part, women who lived on the fringe of society. And because of this situation, when she's discovered as a, her body's discovered and they're trying to piece everything together, Law enforcement is not actually able to complete her story, which is very sad. So not a lot of people knew her, and so they, they're they speculating, but they believe that it's possible that Ms. Russo was either a married woman or a mother 
dealing with some sort of stress or tragedy at the time of her death. So she's she had some. Well, if she was a married mother, wouldn't her husband miss her? In theory, if they separated or. And if she had children, unless again they were in too theory, young to know, wouldn't because they miss her? she was also considered a prostitute in Mons. And she also was known to sell lingerie door-to-door. They do know or believe that she suffered from major depression. And her sad end starts on January 4th, where it is believed this is the day of her disappearance. She's last seen in her home. And a few weeks later, on January 21st, her pelvis... Just the pelvis gets discovered in the Schilt, which is a department of the Nord in France. So, th- I mean, now her just poor body part is just there. Now, one of the other things in the process of the law enforcement investigation, which we'll kind of get into a little bit, it is also believed that she frequented the railroad stations of Mons because that seemed to kind of be the one common area all of these women would frequent. So in terms of potentially where the, the suspect or the killer was able to locate. So you said that she was possibly a prostitute? Right. And... Is there possible that this guy was a John? The more we discuss the victims, the more that looks exactly like the the probability. So being a prostitute is a dangerous job. Absolutely. I mean, you go into some dark, seedy place, you don't know what's going to happen because there's no one there to help you or protect you or to prevent anybody from hurting you with, you know, a John or a client. But speaking of which, so Martine Bond, our next victim, was a former prostitute, and she was actually from France. She was actually 43 when she gets murdered. She's actually the eldest victim. So this guy, he's, you know. The first one you said was 42. Right. She's 43, so they're pretty close to the same age. Correct, but, I mean, this one's the eldest. Yeah. The more we talk about the the victims, you'll see he's not discriminatory about ages, other than they're all legal age. Now, Martine is actually a transsexual worker who supposedly worked in bars that were quote-unquote seedy, both in France and Belgium. She goes missing on July 21st, 1996, and later the same month, her bust gets fished out of the Lake Hane. And, again, when law enforcement tries to figure out who this person is and kind of complete their life story, just like Russo, she has very little family in life. In fact, the police learn that Martine had lost contact with her family and did not have many, many friends. Now, the third victim of the butcher is a Jacqueline Lacroix. I'm obviously not very good with French names. Now, she's 23 when she gets murdered, and there's actually conflicting information, and that's kind of the sad thing. Again, 
with just like the two previous victims. There's not a whole lot of stories completing their lives. So that says a lot about the lives that they had lived. They were sad lives, I think. Now, Jacqueline either had three or four children. She was reportedly separated from her husband. Despite her situation, she had a steady job as a cleaner. And she, as ironies would have it, actually disappears on her way to the butcher, a Belgium butcher. I mean, it's entirely possible. That the butcher is the butcher? Right. But I I doubt it because one of the things that you would hope law enforcement would be doing is... Checking the butchers? Correct. Because <laughs> they would have the tools to commit these, you know, horrible atrocities. But more importantly, to kind of piece together the last hours or days of their lives to see who they potentially ran into to make them the next mark or the next victim, to see where they were at to kind of figure out what the commonality between all these women are. Either way, so on top of her being separated from her husband, she was actually denied custody of her children and... At the time of her disappearance, it's Christmas time. She was, unfortunately, like I said, all of these women seemed to be on the fringe of society. She was an alcoholic and reportedly a drug user. And she goes missing on December 22nd, 1996. And to add insult to injury, somebody uses her debit card to try to get money after she's clearly been murdered. But unfortunately, the CCTV at the bank that the, this person tried to use her card at was not working. So Tried? So they didn't get any money? No, I believe they actually did get some money. Okay. So I don't know if she pleaded with her life and said, I'll give you my money. Here's my card. Here's the digits required. And I mean, that's just really kind of sad to think about. It hurts. Actually, hurts my stomach that, you know. Without a doubt, all these unfortunate women undoubtedly pleaded for their lives. And, you know, this is not going to end well for them. Now, the fourth victim, who is actually the youngest victim, her name is Nathalie Goodart. She was 21. And she also had a child. She had one child, but apparently the child had been taken away and was in the custody of what is called public care. I'm, I'm assuming that's a term used in Belgium because of the problems in Natalie's life. She, too, was an alcoholic and a substance abuser, reportedly. And Goodart actually lives, like, in a studio in Mons, but she was, while she was not a prostitute, she was known to frequent the bars in the downtown areas of inner city, metropole, and Cafe Lagarde. Goodart would go and meet guys because apparently, supposedly, she was promiscuous, but the people that did know her stressed that she was not, in fact, a prostitute. She goes missing on March 21st in 1997. Now, the fifth and final victim is a Begonia Valencia. She's actually 37. She disappears from her home in Fermeris in the in July of 1997. 
She, too, is reportedly an alcoholic and a substance abuse user. And as oddly as it is, when a neighbor was interviewed a decade later regarding these murders and uh, Begonia, the neighbor said that Valencia would, like, take the local bus every evening and butcher or kind of maybe noticed her pattern of behavior or, or and or travel and figured out how to find her or become frequent user of the same form of transport to get her to be comfortable with them. And on top of that, she might this particular lady might have been a little bit more well known because supposedly it is also believed that somebody in Fermeries continues to drop a reef in the local river every year in order to keep Begonia's memory alive. So unlike the other women, this person kind of had people who were more caring and more involved in her life. Now, as I said before, Russo's pelvis gets discovered, you know, not even three weeks after her disappearance. But That was the first one. Correct. Now... Our second victim, Martine, on July 25th in 1996, her mutilated bust gets found in the water of Lahaine. With her, it, it, she's kind of this. She's kind of the odd one out in this scenario. Like I said before, she was transsexual, but when they find her remains floating in the river. The belief that the the butcher had sliced off her breasts after realizing that she was transsexual, and to them, this type of behavior for law enforcement was proof that this particular killer was actually motivated by sex. They can't. They just find body parts. You understand? They aren't really finding kind of a whole lot of information in terms of you know what 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 happened so here and here he's kind of just playing this game of leaving these poor women's pieces of them strewn about like they're pieces of garbage which will bring me to something we'll discuss kind of and and it was really just a true reflection of what a fucking dirtbag this guy was now, the gravity of all of these heinous crimes actually comes into this bigger light. So here they had this one lady disappear, and three weeks later they find her pelvis. Then this other, you know, transsexual disappears, and they, they find her cut up torso. But the true gravity of the, uh, just this horrible, what they have on their hands, this horribleness that they have on their hands, begins on March twenty second, 1997, when law enforcement gets notification of these plastic bags that are clearly visible on the side of the road. And so they go, they send a police officer, an officer by the name of Oliver Mott, out to take a look at these very curious plastic bags. He opens them up, and there's a total of eight, and he sees that the bags contain human remains and these are all located, these eight bags are actually located on the Rue Emily Vanderville in Casamese. 
And so, I mean, this is just like, holy shit, there are eight garbage bags containing human beings. So they scoop them up and they get examined by the magistrate Pierre Pilette, who determines that these body parts, which consist of arms and legs, come from three different women. Interestingly enough, of the eight garbage bags that get found, five of them are from the Knock Hest, which is an affluent seaside resort. So the question gets, is this person connected to this affluent, rich seaside resort? Now, as I said before, they realize that these bags are three different bodies, three different women. And so it's other parts of Martine Bond, Jacqueline LeCure, and Goodart. So it's it's not our first victim, but it's our second, third, and fourth victim. DNA, is that how they know this? Or was that even a thing then? My assumption is yes, because at this point in time, they don't have heads and they don't have dental records. And I want to say one of them even had a tattoo that they were able to use and identify. Now, this is on March 22nd. On the 24th, another bag gets discovered and it's actually containing the busts of a woman. And the bus belongs to Natalie Goodart. Less than a month later, we're talking probably 20 days later, two more bags are found in Harvey in the Rue de Pot near the Hain River. And these bags contain one foot, one leg, and the only head. So that's what helps them kind of make identification. And that these parts belong to Goodart. Six days later, they find another three bags. So they're just finding all these body parts of these unfortunate women. On July 18th, 1997, they find another pelvis near the Chateau La Abbaye. Again, my, my French is horrific. And then things kind of cool down for the rest of the summer. But... And I actually read conflicting information, but either on October 18th, 1997, or November of 1997, they find the skull in an orchard near Huron, which belonged to Begonia, Valencia. Fast forward, solid six months later, they actually find Begonia's teeth and her cervical vertebrae pretty much in the same orchard as they found her skull the previous fall. So on top of, you know, doing these horrible things to these women and then discarding their bodies, like their garbage, this super dickbag butcher does this last slur to them because what he does is he actually begins placing their body pieces in places that have morbid names. So for instance, he starts putting them in places like Rue de Pot, which is the dump street, or like Path of Worry, and the River Hain, which means hate, and uh, another place called Trulé, which means jitters, like 
jitters in reference to like the shakes that they get for the drug use. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that the bags were all closed the same way, and some of them actually contain pieces of bright underwear. I, it, I don't know if it was their underwear or if he forced them to use the underwear. I I mean, you, that was the one thing about doing research. For one, we're talking about a situation that happened almost 27 years ago, 20, 27, 26 years ago, and in a foreign country. And while this was absolutely horrendous that this happened, I suspect it didn't really hit mainstream So a lot of the information were actually repeated information. And unfortunately, because it's a foreign country, a lot of the information is in French, and I don't speak French, and I can't even pronounce French very well. But either way, the other thing that was very consistent was that all of these women were cut up with a very precise metal saw. And again, after a lot of things were said and done, law enforcement kind of narrowed down that all of the victims basically frequented the Mons Railroad Station and were basically living on the fringe of society. And unfortunately, they were kind of almost perfect victims in the essence of they had very little family. Nobody really were going to miss them. He just kind of gave it away because he was dumping body parts. Now, they do actually think that this dirt bag had some sort of medical training because of the way he dismembered and basically butchered them, you know, the way he cut them up and mutilated the bodies, the type of precision that was used. They actually do reach out to the FBI and were asked to consult, and the FBI came up with a theory that this person was probably somebody who worked a steady job and believed that his victims were primarily murdered on the weekend, so which does fit a potential John who work Monday through Friday and then had plenty of opportunity. Weekend warrior. Weekend butcher. Yeah, the weekend butcher. The problem, though, was they they had body parts, you, you understand, and not, no real witnesses, no, not a lot to go off of, basically, but... The Belgian police initially form a special corps of investigators called the Corpses. And it actually gets headed by Pierre Pilette, the first officer who did the, the original eight bags. And they even do their best to lure potential um, people into traps. But none of it works. They, they don't know who it is. They have their list of suspects, one of them obviously being a gentleman who was murdering young girls in Belgium. I believe his name was Mark Dutro. But the problem with Mark was that he focused more on young girls and the women that were murdered were as old as 43. So the victims didn't really fit Mark's. Too old for him. Right. So Mark was tossed out for, for a variety of reasons but primarily that these unfortunate victims did not meet the criteria of Mark's preferences. Now, another person that she considers an ex-boyfriend of good art, but DNA actually exonerates him, and they actually refer to this guy as the gypsy, which probably speaks 
volumes as to maybe the kind of life he was living. So they scratch him off the list. Another person that they actually consider is the Jacques Antoine. And the reason why they're kind of eyeing him is because in February of 2010, which we're talking a solid 13, 14 years later, this guy actually gets arrested for assaulting a beautician. And he is an actual doctor, so he would know about the precise places to dismember somebody. And add insult to injury. Just before this happened, law enforcement receives two letters actually accusing him of being the butcher that were written by his son. And his son says, hey, my father, you know, visited the Nachheist many times between 1985 and 1995. And he actually for some reason, had the garbage bags from this seaside resort in his possessions. Now, later down the line, law enforcement, when they look into this, they're like, well, we determined he actually wanted to sell these garbage bags. I mean, I don't really know how famous these garbage bags are, but a doctor selling them to a, st- to a store in Mons was the reason why he was seen carrying around these garbage bags. Again, he's a doctor, so I'm going to be honest, that that does not really add up. Why is a doctor selling garbage bags from a Mm -hmm. resort to, to stores? But the other thing was that Antone apparently had this obsession with guns, which none of the victims were killed using firearms. Plus... Essentially, and this is the bigger part, okay, there was actually no evidence to link him as the murderer. There was nothing to say. I mean, I don't really know why the son thought it was him, but maybe he had alternative motives. Who knows? But either way, I I think I did get a bit of a chuckle when his own son was like, my dad's dead, my dad's the the bad guy. He's, He's the butcher you've been looking for. Yeah, that's a little weird. Now, the most prevalent person that comes under fire is a gentleman by the name of Smell Tulja. Smell, who was supposedly living in Belgium during the times of the murders, had moved to New York City and was living in New York when, on September 15, 1990, a black garbage bag was found not far from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And someone took a peek inside, and they they see two arms and one leg. Later on, they find the woman's torso. So the police get called, and New York's finest is on the case. They actually get a tip that the woman, in this remembered woman in the garbage bags, is a six-year-old woman by the name of Mary Beale. She was reported to be missing by her neighbors, so she was not living on the fringe. I mean, she had people who cared about her. And in addition to that, she kind of had a steady job in terms of she worked part-time as a court translator because she spoke Serbo-Croatian. And so she actually meets Smil and his wife. And she ends up having 
and an affair with him to the point where even his wife finds out about this affair because the wife leaves like these threatening messages on her phone. And so once her body gets discovered, Shmuel flees the United States. He guns it for the Balkan country of Montenegro. Now, the deal with this country, and I don't know if he did his damn research prior, but Montenegro was not going to extradite him. And whether he knew that, I don't know. But eyebrows are already raised with this guy in Montenegro. And part of their issue was is that he was actually suspected of other murders, not only in the United States, but Belgium and Albania, as well as Montenegro. So they weren't going to extradite him. They had him for other issues. But they did tell them, the United States authorities, that, that you can come and try him here for Mary Beale's case. And the, part of the reason why they think this guy is associated is the way Mary has been found, the disembodiment of her body, and the fact, again, that there is a belief that he was living in the Belgium area. And if this doesn't add insult to injury, on top of all of these other charges, Smail actually gets charged with murdering his own wife, who went missing in Albania several years prior in 2009. So the United States government does prosecute him in Montenegro, and he actually gets convicted. He gets sentenced to 12 years in a Montenegro prison, and that's where he ends up dying. But when it came to finding actual evidence of whether or not he lived in Belgium, that's kind of where their, the investigation kind of falls dead. There's reports saying that he they can't find actual proof that he lived there, but his behavior and the way he cut up Mary, and the fact that he has a, a murderous streak within him. Again, like I said, he murdered his wife in Albania. He murdered some people in Montenegro. He's, I mean, the guy's wanted everywhere. He kind of hit kind of high on the suspects list. So we don't know, but we know. You know, and that's the thing. Again, maybe he didn't live in Mons. He lived in another part of Belgium. And in Belgium, it's a small country. And you and I took a train ride, and we were in a different country within hours. But again, it's hard to have the tools necessary. And again, the one thing to remember is Mons is on the border of France. So did he have like a little workshop in France where he did the, you know. Uh, Like a butcher shop? Right. Because that's the thing you have to think about. Even if he was to lure somebody somewhere, you still have to have an area where you can do these horrible things. You can't be butchering people with precision in the goddamn woods. You can't. And you have to have a plan. You have to have the tools. You can't on the fly in the forest is not going to do it. So this is the sad, sad thing. And again, I've said this before, but, you know, these unfortunate women... With the exception of Mary, Mary was not living on the fringe of society, and she had concerned neighbors, had a job. But the other women, the the Belgian women, unfortunately, just never really seemed to stand a chance. They trusted the wrong person, and it killed them in the end. 
That makes me really, really sad. Yeah. So, they never found him. But they think they did. And kind it's possible. I mean, he li- he's dating someone in 1990 in New York City, three years later. That does fall on the timeline, but again, they can't prove that he actually lived in Belgium. He wasn't there, so... Their biggest subject has a residential or lack thereof problem. But that's it. That is the story of the unfortunate victims of the butcher of Mons, Belgium. All right. That is all we have for you tonight. On to business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. We have a Facebook page. And if you are curious or interested, send me a request. But in the meantime, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their dark corners are or have a very specific serial killer, and I don't mean Captain Crunch kind, uh, send me an email at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. Final thoughts, husband Jeff? Very sad that they never found the guy. Yeah, no justice for these ladies. Yeah. All right. So until next time, please remember. Only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are.